listening to No Lasting City, probably the second best podcast in the world. I'm Matthew Johnston, and with me are Andrew Young and Young Toby. No Lasting City is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church here in Hastings, New Zealand, and our goal with this podcast is to distract you from the mundane and to ravish your minds with the glory of God manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our guest today is Pastor Mike Abendroth. Mike's passion is preaching the Bible in a verse-by-verse fashion and training other men to do the same. Mike Abendroth is a graduate of the Master's Seminary. He is the host of No Compromise Radio, and he is the pastor of Bethlehem Bible Church over there in uh, America. And so, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. You are a dear friend, and uh, we're blessed to have you. So we look forward to uh, all that will transpire today on this episode. Mike, thanks for joining us. Matthew, Andrew, and Toby, it just seemed like it was the other day when we were all sitting in the same room together and uh, talking about the Impact Conference and talking about special lunches and where to get sheepskin rugs and where to find a good surf break and how to ride those fast airboats about, I don't know, 80 kilometers an hour two uh, centimeters away from, from Rock Cliff. And so I uh, appreciate you guys and your ministry and the church and the conference. And so I'm glad to be on the show. It's wonderful to have you. Uh, for those uh, listening and aren't aware, Mike Abendroth was one of our keynote speakers at our 2019 Impact Conference, which means, Mike, uh, you broke uh, the Impact Conference. Um, it, it, it stopped after that. Well, we had it again this year, a Kiwi-only version, which was wonderful. I should add that. It was a great time this year. But in terms of the last time we had guys coming out here from overseas, uh, it was you. I didn't know I broke the conference. I thought it was there to clean up after Scott Artavanis. <laughs> we, ha- we, I, we have wonderful memories of both you and Scott being here together. Scott's actually coming on our podcast, so I'm sure he'll he'll have a word to say about that as well. But Mike, we love you. I remember the first time meeting you, our dear friend, Pastor Donald Stevenson, uh, also a graduate uh, of the seminary. Were you guys at seminary together or no? Uh, we were, Matthew, but I don't know for how many years. I went from 1991 through 1996, and so there was a little overlap there. Uh, and we didn't really hang out that much. I mean, a little bit. I always thought the Kiwis were kind of odd until I went to New Zealand. And then I realized, hey, if you understand Hurley and Billabong and surf culture, uh, then you can understand the Kiwis. And so we weren't really great chaps uh, or friends at seminary, but knew of each other. And uh, he was going to do a conference and was talking to me a little bit about how do you introduce the doctrines of grace to a church. And I said, you know what, that's a great idea, but why don't you just proverbially hide behind the words of Jesus and teach each one of the doctrines of grace from the Gospel of John? So he said, oh, that's a great idea, but I didn't know then he'd later ask me to do that. So I just gave him a good idea to, of what to do. I didn't know I was going to be the speaker. So that's how I met Donald. And then I met you there in that pre-conference uh, preaching session with Adam Tyson and some other guys. Yeah. And it was at that pre-conference that uh, you really, you gave a profound call to the pastors 
to not shy away from preaching the doctrines of grace. And I think a number of us had looked around the room, discussions that resulted afterwards, and we realized that for a while there'd been a pragmatism that had crept in, an unwillingness to, to unashamedly preach the doctrines of grace. And it was actually young Toby here, who, by the way, his name is Toby Young. He's the youth pastor at Riverbend Bible Church. We call him Young Toby for this podcast only, really, playing off another well-known podcast that has a young Jamie. It was Toby who came to me around about the same time and just said, what, what is it with uh, you guys? But by, by you guys, he meant guys who graduated from the seminary and were preaching here. We kind of, you guys, you guys kind of tuck away the doctrines of grace under your, under your coat. And I said, well, Toby, uh, Mike Abendroth has come as an instrument of the Lord to fix that. And so I can't speak for everyone else, but for me personally, Mike, you have had a monumental impact on my preaching ministry. And... So have other men over, over the years, many, many mentors, many preaching professors, many pastors. Post-seminary, uh, that has continued. And then to meet you at the solar conference that was put on up north in a town called Rotorua, you really, uh, from that moment on, have blessed me in mighty ways. We uh, dialogue uh, in one way or another most days, and so I'm grateful for you. Grateful that you're here on the podcast. What we want to talk about on this episode of the podcast, Mike, is preaching Jesus, moralism, and the third use of the law. Three components that are really, really important. One of the one of the primary things that you've helped me, and I know many others, uh, is to ensure that our sermons are filled more and more with the Lord Jesus. And so let's begin there. Mike, can you help us see and understand on a greater level the importance of preaching Christ, both the person and the work? Well, first let me say, Matthew, that I'm glad uh, young Toby uh, said that to you. And for years, I wanted to come to Impact. I secretly hoped that the Lord would invite, have somebody invite me to Impact, and I never was. And when I finally asked the people in charge at the time, why am I never invited? They said, because I was too Calvinistic. And I thought that was interesting. So then you, plural ye, asked me to come and specifically talk about the covenant of redemption and uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. And and that was kind of going from, well, the solas to the five points, doctrines of grace, to covenant of redemption, ratcheting up uh, in, a, in an immense way. And so I was very, very thankful for that uh, to go talk about uh, Titus chapter one, verses one to three and Ephesians chapter one, et cetera. And, and I mean, can you imagine the triune God in eternity past uh, planned to save people? We always talk about the plan of salvation. Uh, when was it planned? And, and even that language is accommodating language because there wasn't kind of a plan, step one, step two, if then, flow chart. It's one singular purpose, right? When you think about the decrees of God, it's best to think about them as the decree, one single thought. And it just blows your mind as you think about this infinite uh, triune God. Well, when we think about preaching Christ, most of us would say, do you know what? Uh, we want to make sure we present the claims of Christ, his person, his work, his representative work, his substitutionary death, his literal resurrection, ascension, session. We present those truths to unbelievers. Uh, 
And if we were going to have a special resurrection service or a, maybe a Christmas service at our church or an outreach, most every pastor that I know would say, let's make sure to tell them about who Jesus is. And then the response to the good news, that is to believe and repent and trust, etc. But most of us have forgotten or never learned that the only way Christians are sanctified is through faith in Christ Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. Let me put it this way. Can you be sanctified by moral exhortations, ethics, and law only? I'm never against law. I mean, it reflects God's character. But Calvin called this duplex gratia. That is the double benefit. I got to see R.C. Sproul write some Latin words one time on a chalkboard in Orlando, Florida. And so I have a special Latin anointing now. Uh, but it's the duplex gratia, Christ for pardon, salvation, and Christ for power, sanctified uh, by the Spirit of God. Uh, Christ for us and Christ in us. And so the real question is, can people overcome sin, resist temptation, do the one another's, apart from the work of Christ and union with him. So it's been one of my goals to make sure I tell people, especially in our circles, men that want to deal with the text atomistically and dig down into word studies and syntactical issues, um, how many times words have been used, to make sure they talk about not just Jesus for salvation, but the motivation for holiness stems from union with Christ and gratitude for what he's done. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. And, you know, I think until we see something, we're just kind of going along and uh, along with the, with the motions, as it were. When we begin to see what preaching Christ looks like, I mean, I think of, um, I don't know how many sermons I've heard on Psalm 19, for example. Many, many sermons on Psalm 19 that rightly, point us to the Word of God, and yet the sermons don't make it to Jesus. It seems, Mike, that there are many, many sermons um, in conservative evangelical circles that just don't quite make it to Jesus. Um, talk to us a little bit about how pastors um, can be getting to Jesus in their sermons. Sure, I like the question. What happens, Matthew, is we study a passage. We know that it's super important uh, to be faithful. This is no game that we're playing. When you say, thus saith the Lord, we want to do our diligent work. And you can think about Second Timothy and uh, approved workmen, not ashamed. And we want to make sure we rightly divide the word of truth. And we're very diligent in that. I think, though, what I do with my preaching students is I'll tell them, uh, after you've done your work, your exegetical work, hermeneutical work, uh, all the other things, you know what the text says and means. I want you literally to push yourself back away from the table. And then I want you to think, okay, how am I going to make sure this message is Christian? How can this be a Christ-centered sermon? I don't care if you're redemptive historical, Christocentric, Christotelic. It doesn't really matter where you fall on those. But how do I think about making this a Christian sermon? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And some people say, well, you interpret the new in light of the old or the old in light of the new. We can have those arguments, but we are preaching 
to Christian people who trust in the risen Savior. And therefore, I want to make sure. So if it was Psalm 19, I do my work. Here's God's glory shown in, in natural revelation. Here's God's glory shown in special revelation regarding his word. And it doesn't take me that long to say something like, well, you may or may not believe this is a messianic psalm. But everything in this psalm reminds me about the Lord Jesus, the word incarnate, and how Jesus talked and how he preached in Mark chapter 1. Before you know it, I'm already there talking about the Lord. And all of us would agree, if we preach Psalm 19 so that an unregenerate rabbi uh, would agree with it, something's wrong. So Psalm 19 is a Christian psalm in a Christian book that is the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so the main thing I try to do with my students is not try to insert Jesus into a verse where he might not be, uh, but he's in all of the canon and whatever Luke 24 and John 5 talk about, it has to be at least driving me to say, do you know what? In the Law and the Prophets, they speak of Christ. And in my sermon, can't we think of Paul? Colossians one twenty eight, him we proclaim. Can we think about 1 Corinthians 2, 2? Paul, before he even got to Corinth, he knew about all the evil things in Corinth, and he knew he had a message, and that was going to be the crucified Savior, because they didn't want the crucified Savior, so that's what he gave them. And so I just asked myself the question and try to ask my students, why wouldn't you want to talk about Jesus? Uh, I regularly critique sermons, and one that I just got done critiquing, I said to the pastor in America, I want you, your next sermon, to talk about Jesus for at least 10 minutes. And I don't care if he's in your passage or not. Why don't you just say when you're in the epistle of James, why don't you just say everything in this book reminds me about what Jesus said and what he did, turn the Bible to the gospel account according to, to Luke. So there's all kinds of ways to get to Jesus in your sermon, but he better be in your sermon because here at Bethlehem Bible Church, you get one shot to not talk about Jesus. You'll be reproved and rebuked, and then you're done because when you stand in the pulpit, you proclaim the risen Savior because without him, no justification, no sanctification, no motivation, no glorification, nothing. And so let's get our heads away from keeping our, our minds down like this to see the panoply and the riches and the swath of redemption because we are telling people about the greatest man who was ever born. Yes, he's more than a man, but he's certainly a man. So why wouldn't we tell them about Jesus? Lastly, before I take a deep breath and you guys can talk, the law is written on our hearts. You go to work, it's law. You're at home, there's law. You turn, you know, you turn on the TV and it's government law. Law is built into the system. But I'll tell you what's not built into the system. Good news, the gospel. That's why preachers have to come and bring that good news. That's why Romans 10, even our feet are pretty. Ever look at your feet? Even our feet are beautiful because we bring the good news. So law is built into the system, into our heart, into our conscience. That's why we don't need to get up every Sunday and give people law. I mean, frankly, is it right to say husbands love your wives on Sunday morning? Yes, but they already know that. So I'll tell them, love your wives, but let me tell you why and how, and it focuses back to just as Christ loved the church. Hey, Mike, do you, do you see this? There's a pattern that people aren't preaching Jesus. Um, is that something you observe quite broadly? Yeah, Andrew, I think uh, it's one of those conundrums in life. How can we as Christians, I mean, just think about it for a second, the four of us, 
We all had pretty sinful past, some more than others, whether it's self-righteousness or unrighteousness. And we have been given a perfect righteousness as Jesus died for our unrighteousness and self-righteousness. And we get to go to heaven. I'm 61. I don't know how long I'll live. But I, Mike Abendroth, and you men, we get to go to heaven. Who's the one that made us go to heaven? Who's the one that brought us there? Of course, it was the triune work of God, and we see it on we see our triune God on perfect display as the Father sends the Son, and the Spirit of God is applying uh, the work of the Son to us. And why wouldn't we talk about Jesus? What else do we have to talk about? You can get TED Talks in a lot better places. And so I find the weird thing, Andrew that I have to remind Christian pastors who believe the gospel, who have been saved, don't forget about Jesus. And and it's like a shock to their system. I mean, I just did two more seminars on preaching in the last month. And I said, hey guys, here's my two points in summary before I give you the breakdown. Number one, you need to talk about Jesus more because I, I watched every one of their sermons that they submit before class. And when you do, why don't you smile? Because good news in content, sinners are freed by the work of Christ, and good news in delivery. Remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I gospeled the gospel. Yes, delivery is subordinate to content, but since content is so important, why don't we deliver it with a attitude of good news? And I get uh, and I watch people scold. You know, you you have drill sergeants and law people. Uh, the more people are law ethics only, Andrew, the more they scold. Because that's almost what the law does, at least in the first use, it accuses. And so therefore, why would I even have the job or privilege or ministry of literally flying around the world, reminding pastors, you need to talk about Jesus more, but it's such a dumb moment, D-U-H moment, that uh, I still have to do it. So it's broad spectrum uh, from Reformed Baptist to dispensationalist and everything Mm. in between. Mm. I was looking at a a book last night that I'd read. It was, I think you recommended it to me, The Doctrine of Justification by James Buchanan. And it was uh, a little quote there that I'd highlighted. And I think he was talking about how the Catholics had, um, you know, robbed people of their assurance. And then he was talking about the doctrine of justification by faith, which obviously comes to us because of Christ's righteousness. And it says, it imparted immediate relief and comfort to many anxious and distressed consciences. And then he says it passed through Europe like an electric current and proved at many a homely hearth that it was still as of old the power of God unto salvation. And you just get such a thrill, don't you, when you when you see something like that of Christ that um, it just passed through like an electric current. Now, see, what I would do if you were my students is I would just have taken a picture of you, Andrew, smiling when you gave that quote. And I would say, see, you can smile because it's such a great truth. And so make sure when you're telling your congregation those things, smile as well. I think what we have have, have had happened in America and New Zealand across the evangelical world, we've forgotten our ecclesiology. Here's what I mean. We would all say, oh, those seeker people, they're wrong because they're preaching to the unbeliever and their their ministry is to the unbeliever. And we recognize that. It's pragmatism. It's seeker sensitive. But we, too, make the same mistake very often. And here's how we make that mistake. We look at the congregation and we say things like T. David Gordon in his book, um, Why Johnny Can't Preach. You think you're a Christian? 
I'm going to prove to you that you're not because you're not obeying enough, praying enough, evangelizing enough, loving your wife enough, submitting your, to your husband enough, doing the one another's enough. Preachers will talk about obedience. That's why we need to talk about the Lord's obedience. Yes, of course, his death, but also his righteous meriting of the law in our place, in our place. So I just think, what's our ecclesiology? Is our ecclesiology, there are Christians sitting there. You say, well, there could be unbelievers. Well, sure. Then tell them, do you know what? This passage isn't for you. What you need to do is trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, for your sins because you're a sinner. But for the Christian, aren't we supposed to encourage the saints? We've got a bunch of people out there that just want to take away assurance and drive people with the law. And I'm thinking, that's not what Jesus said about bruised reeds. That's not how he acted. If there's a self-righteousness, we whack people. But if people are hurting, people are going through troubles and trials, it is the job of the under-shepherd for the great shepherd and chief shepherd to make sure we encourage people that God loves them, that even though they failed this week, I mean, isn't that what communion is? What have we done with communion? We've basically said, did you obey enough this week to come? That's it. That, that's basically Catholic without transubstantiation. Here's what communion is. Do you know what? This is a communion service. Who's serving whom? By the way, it's the Lord Jesus serving you with a foretaste of the ultimate meal in heaven. And by the way, Let's say you were to walk to Jesus's house, theoretically, and you had said some things about Jesus during that day that weren't uplifting. You'd probably go to the door. Jesus would greet you. You would say, sorry, Jesus, I, I did some things against you. He'd say, I forgive you. Come on in. And then he'd serve you. This is a meal. And we turned the communion service into funeral service. Have you obeyed enough this week? That's not the point. The point is God has received you by grace alone through faith alone, and he still does. You didn't love your wife this week? Well, who did? And such a God and such a love from God should melt even Christians' hearts to say, do you know what? I, I, I want to obey. It, it was Adoniram Judson who said, brethren, look to Jesus. This sight will fill you with greatest consolation and delight. Look to him on the cross. So great is his love that if he had 1,000 lives, he would lay them all down for your redemption. The God of the universe loves you, not because of what you've done, not because of your sin this week, but because of the Lord Jesus. And I want you to know, dear Christian, God's okay with you. He's not angry with you. Judgment day for you, Christian, unlike these final justification people, you don't have to worry. Do you know on judgment day, Christian, God the Son is going to confess your name before the Father. It's going to be a great day. You won't have to pay for anything because all your sins have been paid for. And we're going to have this meal today to remind you that you live in a works righteousness system, but you need to be reminded that all the work has been done by the Lord. And so why don't you freely partake of the bread and the body of Christ? Because I need to remind you, you think God doesn't love you because you didn't obey this week. I want you to know that God loves you with a perfect love because Jesus obeyed perfectly in your Amen. place. Amen. People, a lot of people don't like to hear the word balance. Christians necessarily don't like to hear the word balance. And I can fully sympathize with what they mean by that because often balance is explained in a way where it's theological compromise. But when I think of the word balance as it pertains to this whole conversation, I think of a saddle on a horse and I think in one stirrup is gospel tincture and in the other 
maybe what we could call a, a legal tincture, or you could say a right understanding of the law gospel distinction, Mike, which means that it keeps me measured and balanced. It keeps me to know to whom I should minister to in what way. So what you've really helped me to see is, you know, because we all grew up under, you know, there was that kind of fiery preaching that people really um, spoke about and, that you know, the sermons went viral and people come to know the Lord through them. But they weren't for the everyday, um, week by week rather, Lord's Day services to the saints. And so I think what you've really helped me to see over these years is that before you is a precious flock who are, if it's a healthy church, who are for the most part children of God. And so they need gospel tincture week in and week out. And then at the same time, there are those that are lost and unconverted, which is where we do the work of an evangelist in fulfilling our ministry by preaching the word. And we also preach the gospel. And we preach the gospel. And this is really transitioning into the next part we want to talk about. We preach the gospel. And the reason we preach Christ is to avoid a form of moralism. Where, where everything is just moralistic and pietistic. Um, and so when we talk about wanting to preach Jesus, I love what you say. I, 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 I just agree wholeheartedly. And when we think about it, there's a reason why we preach Jesus. It's not The result is on, on the other side of the coin. It's so that the saints may behold glory, right? That the saints may uh, live in light of John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. And then in, in Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 40, that did I not say to you that when you believe, you will see the glory of God? And then 2 Corinthians 3, 18, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so we present Christ to people because in beholding the glory of Christ, they are transformed and God gets greater glory. So this is the furthest thing from moralistic preaching. And so let's transition now into talking about moralism. Unfold the deadly dangers of moralistic preaching, if you will, Mike. Sure. Well, I think you're going to ask me a question uh, about the law here in a second. So let me just kind of tie both together. Sure. Uh, if I just would were to say to listeners who don't know the the nomenclature, the verbiage, law, it it can have a general sense and it's instruction, Torah, and it can have a strict sense, do something, an imperative using grammatical terms. And gospel, it can have a broad sense. This is the gospel of Mark, right? General truths about Jesus, including his teaching, but strictly good news about what Jesus did as a representative sin bearer uh, who would be raised from the dead. Uh, Good news about how those that would look to him would believe. So here's what happens. We want people to obey the Lord. I think everybody wants holy living in their congregation. No one that I know of uh, who's a godly man wants crazy, antinomian, lawless, licentious living. We want holy living. And if you talk to any Christian, uh, you would ask them, would you like to live a life uh, worthy of your calling, Ephesians 4.1? And they'd say, yes, I'd love to do that. That's my desire. That's my goal. I'd like to live a holy life. 
But how do we live the holy life? That's where the rub is when it comes to this sanctification issue. And my push, Andrew, and Matthew and Toby, is I just don't think you can do it with law only. I think it has to be, think about it for a second, law from someone. So here's what I mean. Law is not just floating around the world abstractly. Law reflects the nature of God. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, verse 8 and following. Uh, if you think of, uh, I have it here in front of me, Romans 7, the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law reflects God's nature and his character because God is holy, righteous, and good. So here's the real rub now. Here's the, the drum roll, as it were. The unbeliever hears the law of God. And he receives that law from the judge. The judge is saying, love me, love your neighbor. Don't look on a woman with lust. Don't commit adultery in your heart. And if you break the law once, it's over. James chapter 2, verse 10. So the law that's holy, good, and righteous that reflects God's nature is coming from the judge. But what we need to remember when we're Christians reading the Bible, reading laws that are good and right and profitable, are we receiving those laws as Christian men and women from a judge? Or has Jesus already received the judgment from God and now the law is the same, but our relationship to the lawgiver is different? This is where the marrow controversy was so good. You, dear Christian, if you're listening or watching, you receive the laws of God from a father because your position to the lawgiver has changed based on the work of God, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. And therefore, when I receive the law of God from a father, it's completely different. Remember, if you... If you I don't know, when you have little kids, Toby's uh, little one was just poking his head in, her head in, I couldn't quite tell. Uh, and so Toby gets a little picture to put on the wall at the office of Toby's face when he was teaching the youth meeting. And it's just like a bunch of crazy stuff and the eyes aren't right and the, you know, the hair's going crazy and you're like, this picture, why does a dad put that picture up in his office? I mean, it's a joke. It doesn't even look like a person, let alone a stick figure. Answer, he accepts the son or daughter, so he accepts the son or daughter's works. And so if you were to bake a cake and hand it to Gordon Ramsay for Master Chef or one of these cooking competitions, uh, he would probably say, this tastes horrible and throw it away or cut it in half and put it on your head and ask if you're an idiot sandwich. But if it was his four-year-old daughter who made the exact same disgusting cake, he would accept that cake and say, oh, I love you. So the way we really get rid of moralism is not saying, well, forget the law. We're not going to preach the law because the only verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beholding Jesus. No, no, there's law. And that law now guides a Christian. It doesn't condemn a Christian. Jesus is condemned. You want to live a good life, son, to honor me and make it good for you? You can just hear it, can't you, when Solomon says in Proverbs 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, my son. And so now I obey God's law out of gratitude, and I know when I disobey, which I disobey a lot, I'm never kicked out of the family because I'm secure in Christ Jesus. So the issue with moralism is not let's abandon law, let's give the law. When the Bible says don't complain to Christians, you ought not to complain. 
But who's giving the law? And after you spank the child and discipline the child, don't you love them? I mean, I'm a sinful father. My kids are all grown, so it's past any way that anybody could uh, get after me in terms of legally. Uh, Before I would spank my child, I would say, I love you. Daddy's not mad at you. I'm going to give you a spanking because this is what the Bible says, because you broke my law. I give them the discipline afterwards. Please forgive me, Daddy. I forgive you hugs and loves. I'm a sinful dad, and I do that. Yet we sometimes as preachers, it's just, here's the law, and how am I supposed to do it? Why should I do it? I don't even want to do it. And so to me, moralism is just external behavior based on trying harder, apart from thinking who Jesus is, what he's done for me, responding in gratitude, and knowing that he's the one handing me the law now, and I'm not going to lose my salvation if I don't really obey, because frankly, I've never really perfectly obeyed according to God's standards. Andrew, you got a question? I guess I do. Or Toby. Okay, if not, I just keep talking. No, you guys are beyond me. I'm just, I'm just enjoying learning. It, it was good to hear the, um, the, the distinction between who gives the law. So there's still value in the law, but to hear who it comes from and the analogy of the parenting was, was real helpful to me. Uh, and it was my son who poked his head in the, in the frame for you, Mike. I'll tell him, I'll tell him that you thought he was a girl. He'll be cut. Okay, good. <laughs> no. no, tell him that I'm getting old and I can't see. No, no but Mike, that um, that little <laughs> analogy there of accepting our imperfect works, just like we'd take the the painting of a of a little child, is a, a very helpful little analogy. So thank you for that. It's um, I think that's a bit of a conundrum for us in our minds because we, in some sense, when we're thinking of justification, we we see that there's a perfect righteousness that's re- and law keeping that's required of us. And then in sanctification, surely the same level stands, but there's some sort of dynamic there that we have to come to grips with that at we, we are trying to do good works, which is still imperfect and mixed with um, different sin. And so that's a, that's a really helpful analogy. And by the way, I never come up with really anything original unless it's, you know, dumb or in error. That was Calvin. Calvin basically said, when God God receives your imperfect works, and by the way, they're all going to be imperfect because do we have really ever perfect motives, perfect delight, loving God perfectly? So if he receives you, he receives your works as well. And that's why we can come to him even with works with some tainted things. And it just makes it, makes it so wonderful. I mean, m- one of my big issues is I see pastors that are self-righteous preachers. You call yourself a Christian? I'm going to show you that you're not making people lose their assurance. That's, by the way, what Rome did. I don't care if you use the law and convict people and people are like, oh, how could I even do that? Then you give them the balm of the gospel. And people that don't do that, they are, as Matthew said, the moralistic ones and ethical preachers. And it is not good to have somebody hear you preach and say at the end of the sermon, I don't even think I'm a Christian because everything's been undone. We're teaching to Christian people. We're wanting them to mature. We're wanting to admonish them. Yes, certainly. But we tell them about who Jesus is and how they're forgiven in Christ Jesus. And what happened to me was uh, I had to learn this lesson late in life because when I hear the claims of Christ, I'm the self-righteous one. I think I do them. The other option is you have people in a church who are honest with themselves and they become despairing. And so without preaching Christ and preaching law only, 
you'll either have self-righteous people or despairing people. And so while I still struggle with self-righteousness, and I hate that I am, uh, it took the preaching of Hebrews and cancer to make me think the way I do now. And I'll listen to young preachers scold their congregations, whack their congregations, give them no encouragement, no hope, no Christ-centeredness. And I say to myself, I try not to say it out loud, I say to myself, I sure hope they don't have to get cancer to learn the lesson that their self-righteous preaching is an abomination. Jesus is a kind, gentle shepherd, and he knows our frame, does he not? Does he not know our ways are but dust and that we're weak and frail? frail? God, frail. (laughs) Doesn't he know that? The answer is yes. And so there's nothing wrong with preaching law to people who are Christians, but I'm not going to use the first use of the law that condemns them and accuses them and exposes them. So they're like, "Uh, what must I do to be saved? No, no. I'm going to preach to them a, a law that guides them, directs them for God's glory and for their own good. And I'm going to talk about it just like I am right now in a way that's not always lecturing and scolding. Mike, talk to us a little bit about third use of the law, what that is, what that isn't, what that means, and how that's in, why in, that's important. Sure. Well, one of the things that I think can hurt us when we talk about the three uses of the law is starting to say things like, well, what do we do with the Old Testament law? What about the Ten Commandments? How many are valid for today? What about the Sabbath? And I think those are all great arguments to, to be had. But then this is a different argument. The three uses of the law relate to what we said earlier, Matthew. Who's giving you the law? What's your relationship to the lawgiver? And so simple in Lutheran and Reformed circles, the three uses of the law, and sometimes they change the order, but the order would be number one, uh, to convict of sin, right? You're talking to unbelievers. You're telling them God's law and what his standards are. Matthew 5, 48, about perfection and holiness and perfect obedience, entire obedience, exact obedience, perpetual obedience. You need to obey the law. And so a good word for that would be mirror, right? You You, you need to see yourself in a mirror. And so you know who you are. So you need a savior. That's first use. It's only for unbelievers. Second use we don't hear much about, and that's both unbelievers and believers uh, hear the law of God, and it restrains sin in a society. Don't steal. And so both believers and unbelievers hear that, and they realize there are consequences to stealing or committing adultery. And so that's kind of like a curb. If the first use of the law is a mirror for the unbeliever, the second use of the law is a curb for believer and unbeliever. And then lastly, the third use of the law is that relationship we talked to just in that last segment of the show. You receive the law of God from a father and it guides you. So mirror first, restrainer or curb second, and then a guide. This is how you should live your life. And you can just think of a dad telling a son, Proverbs 5, stay away from sexual sin When you get married, enjoy sex with your wife. And it's a law from a dad. And what if he disobeyed the law or didn't do it perfectly? Uh, He doesn't lose his relationship to his father. He's always a son. But this is good for him. And his dad's been around the block. And his dad understands what's right and good. And 
He wants to honor him, and therefore, based on his relationship to his father, he wants to obey. Guys, it reminds me of John Payton when he went off to seminary, and here's this Scottish man who was going to go preach to the cannibals eventually in the New Hebrides Island. Uh, His autobiography talks about his stoic Scottish father walking him uh, to the end of the field and saying goodbye, and then John Payton walking away, and he kept turning back. He'd be a quarter of a kilometer away and then a half a kilometer still turning back. And his dad was there crying. And John Payton said, I said to myself on that day, I would always try to be a good Christian man and obey not only God the Father, but my human father. Because if I ever had such a human father like that, I'd want to honor him with my obedience. And I thought, you know what? That's perfect. That's exactly what we're trying to do when it comes to the law from God. Love your neighbor, love God as sons and daughters. And so the third use guides and directs. It doesn't condemn because Jesus was condemned for us. So in our circles, Matthew, Andrew, and Toby, since I talk about Jesus a lot, I'm told, well, what about the law? Do you ever preach the law? Don't we want holy living? Don't we? We don't want antinomians. And, and of course, I don't want antinomians, and you can just listen to one sermon at bbcchurch.org to realize I regularly give people the law, but I give the Christians the law from the lawgiver. This is the God that loved you and redeemed you, and he, much greater than John Payton's father, loved. And if John Payton says of a human father, I want to honor him with my life, how much more for us? And so I think Heidelberg Catechism is right. Guilt in Adam and our own sin, grace of Christ Jesus incarnate. How do we respond? We respond with obedience, that's true, but out of a heart of gratitude. And so it's guilt, grace, gratitude. And that's not just Heidelberg, that's that's Romans. And so whenever we talk about uses of the law, always remember law is not abstract floating. It is from a judge or from a father. And I know some people have had horrible fathers Uh, But in general, we realize that even sinful human fathers don't kick us out of the family when we disobey one of his laws. Mm, Wonderful. Thank you, Mike. It it gives us uh, this uh, ability to minister well to our flock when we understand these things, right? And so it's so important. We're we're so grateful. When, When we preach from the New Testament epistles, we we can know that those imperatives, uh, as long as they are deeply, deeply marinated in gospel indicatives, that they are good for the soul of the saint. Yep, that's exactly right. So when we preach, for instance, laws found in Ephesians 4, there's all kinds of laws. Tell the truth, right? Don't lie. Uh, don't steal. Uh, work hard. Uh, don't let the sun go down in your anger love your wives. There's all kinds of commands. They're good and right. They're a guide. But we position them in, okay, what about Ephesians 1, 2, and 3? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, how much he loves us. This is part of the plan of God, etc. Remember in seminary, Matthew, we had to read Charles Bridges, The Christian Ministry, Banner of Truth. Here's what he says. The mark of a minister approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed, is that he rightly divides the word of truth. 
This implies a full and direct application of the gospel to the mass of his unconverted hearers, combined with a body of spiritual instruction to the several classes of Scripture. His system will be marked by scriptural symmetry and comprehensiveness. This revelation is divided in two parts, the law and the gospel, essentially distinct from each other, though so intimately connected that an accurate knowledge of neither can be obtained with the other. And so what Bridges is saying, when it comes to Christian ministry to Christian people, we make sure we talk about who they are in Christ, good news gospel, and then because of what God has done, the response of obedience comes from gratitude, and it's not going to get you removed from the family of God, but you ought to have the sun go down in your anger. And I think even the way we preach that, shouldn't we say, don't we all say this, if you preach Lamentations, the way you preach that genre, that book, should be one with your heart full of tears and lament. You should be all happy when you're preaching Lamentations. Well, so too, why are we preaching the law of God like it's some kind of stick to the unbeliever when these are God's people? And so I think we ought to reflect by the way we preach the attitude of a father directing and guiding a son. When you want your son to obey, let's think about it. What do you do? Stop it, chin up, shake their hand firmly, look in the eyes, say thank you. You're not excused from the table until I tell you. Tell mom that the dinner was very good. Clean up your room. Stop hitting your sister. The list goes on and on and on. But there's a way to do it. And a better way would be something like this. Here's Ephesians 1 to 3, essentially for the human father. Son, I love you. Everything in this room of yours, I bought for you gladly because I love you. I take you to the best hospitals, the best doctors. You have the best pastor in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I take you across the world for all kinds of trips and we have fun. Don't we have more fun than almost everybody in the neighborhood? And I just love you. And so because I love you so much, when I ask you to do something, there's a reason. And so I do want you to say, Mom, thank you for that meal and push in your chair and not hit your sister. But the reason why I don't want you to do that is because you'll honor me if you do the right thing and it'll be good for you. And so that just even the tone versus this blistering scolding. I think some of our listeners' favorite preachers uh, do the exact opposite. Some of the most famous preachers in all the world are they blister people and scold. And if I could just approach them and say, if you could understand law gospel and third use of the law and who it is coming from and the marrow controversy that the law comes from a mediator, it would change their ministry. And I know it's changed mind. And so I mind. So I'd, I'd like to have everybody try to read the marrow controversy by Edward Fisher. It'd be helpful. Mike, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciated this. This is a very important episode. For not only the preacher, but for the, the the church member, the congregant, and we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we're just so blessed by you. And uh, if you listener want to check out uh, Mike uh, Mike's ministry, you can visit uh, his church, Bethlehem Bible Church, and you can find him uh, at NoCompromiseRadio.com, which is a wonderful wonderful uh, radio show. So Mike, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time. 
and uh, we love you and are very grateful for you. Thank you. Hey, Matthew, since we're friends, can I say one last thing as a little addendum? If I were to ask people, are you a person of faith? Most every Christian that I know would say, yes. Well, could you tell me why you're a person of faith? And they would say, I read the Bible. I go to church. I try to use my spiritual gifts. I try to pray. And you know what they're describing? They're describing good things, but they're not describing the life of faith. They're describing faithfulness. And you know, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. The Bible teaches in Galatians 2.20 that the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And so if you ever ask the question, dear podcast listener, are you a person of faith? Your answer should be something like this. The answer is yes, because God intervened and saved me. The triune God saved me. And now, not only for my justification, but sanctification, I trust in the risen Savior. And even that faith has been a gift of God. Amen. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. Great to be on, guys. I appreciate you. The second greatest podcast in all the world. No Lasting City Podcast is a ministry of Riverbend Bible Church in Hastings, New Zealand. For more information, please visit our website at riverbend.org.nz or visit us on YouTube. Follow us on social media where you can interact with us or ask us any questions. Our links are in the show notes and we'd love to see you there.